Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. So also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. The details of this story, I mean, are pretty straightforward, right? It's not one of those funny parables. We got to spend a bunch of time just trying to figure out what's going on, what Luke is communicating to us here. This is still historical narrative. If we're talking about the genre of literature that we're in in the Bible, this is still historical narrative. So Luke is just recounting to us the details of of this event. Um, You see right off the bat in verse 1, Luke says, on one occasion. So Luke here is not saying, now right after we we talked last week about the healing of, or the, the releasing of the demon, the, the casting out of the demon-possessed man, the healing of Simon's mother, and then the, the many healings and deliverances or exorcisms, and then this teaching in the synagogue. We talked about that last week, and then we have this story next week. It isn't necessarily this happened this day and then the next day this happened, but on one occasion, Luke is putting this story in to kind of see this is the official call of Simon Peter, James, John, and likely Andrew into full-time discipleship with Jesus. This, um, this narrative is unique to Luke. So we, we are aware we've got four Gospels, right? We've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The first three are the synoptic Gospels. It's a big, fancy, fun word, so you know I love it. Synoptic. It, it just, it's a fancy word for similar Matthew, Mark, and Luke all share a lot of their content, and John is like some ridiculous amount of unique content John wrote later and filling in kind of the gaps of all of these things that aren't included likely in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So Luke is the last of the synoptic gospels as they're arranged in our Bible, but this this narrative is unique to him. We know from the other gospels that Jesus has met Simon Peter before. They, they met at the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan. They spent a few days with Jesus and saw the, likely the uh, miracle of the turning water into wine and at the Cana of Galilee, and they saw some other amazing things go on. And then that's kind of their call into part-time discipleship, you'd say. You can read that in John chapter 1. 
And then you read another story of them meeting Jesus on the lake in Mark chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 4. But this one seems to be this last final event where, where Jesus really shows up and makes this full-time call to them for discipleship. So sometime after this, they, on one occasion, this story comes along. And there are, as always, with these narratives, you've probably heard them, you probably maybe have heard this story before, read through your Bible and encountered this story. There are tons of practical applications we could try to pull out of this, of see how he did this and see what Jesus did here and look how the net, you can start making this allegorical and try to say, oh, well, in your life, can't you see how you're so-and-so? But we know that's not what we want to do here. When we open up the Gospel of Luke, when we do expositional preaching, when we study through a book of the Bible, we want to, what is the author trying to say to us? Luke includes this for a reason, and he tells us right at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, the reason why he's writing these things is so that Theophilus can have a sure account of, the, of who Jesus is. I have written these things so that you may be assured of, of the life of Christ, basically. He's saying these are things I have written down so that you may know and have confidence in who Jesus is. So when we read this passage, we, the first question we don't want to ask is, what does this passage mean for me? What, or what examples can I learn from here? Those aren't the questions we so often jump to, but we don't want to jump there off the bat. The first question we ask is not, how does this mean something for me? The first question we want to ask, and what Luke is trying to show us, the first question we want to ask is, what does this tell me about Jesus? What does this tell me about my Savior? And I put that question out here. This, when, when Luke begins these two books, Luke and Acts, he writes both of these books. When he writes this, he starts out saying that he is writing these things so that we may have an accurate account of the life of of Jesus. And so the question we only have time for this morning is what does this mean? What does this show me about my savior? What does this tell me about Jesus? And the reason why I want to, the reason why this is the route I always try to take with us seeing Jesus. I can't preach to all of your needs in in one way. I mean, there are so many things going on. I can't preach to all the things I got going on in my own life, let alone all the things going on in your life. I can't sit down and try to tack off, okay, well, in your instance, here's where God makes a difference. In your instance, here's where God makes a difference. And you just kind of try to fill up the air with all these applications. And I, I can't do it and couldn't, and I don't know all of them. But in another sense, the reality, grasping and seeing the greatness of our God has applications across the spectrum. There's, there is no circumstance in your life that isn't impacted when you see the reality of how great and glorious our God is. And so while I can't on one level address every need, in another way, the only way we can is to fix our eyes on who Jesus is. Who is the Savior? To gaze at this one, to learn of Him, to repent and to trust in Him. And so that's what we're going for this morning to glimpse the greatness of this God in Jesus Christ, as who is Jesus Christ, who is God. So what do we see about Jesus? And uh, 
uh, like a good, uh, ridiculous pastor I have, everything starts with the letter C. So they got a nice alliteration going on here. Everything starts with the letter C because I'm just going to be lame like that. don't even care. Lay it on the table. What do we see about Jesus in this narrative? And the first thing we see clearly is that Jesus is a God who communicates. He's God who communicates. Jesus communicates. God shows up, becomes man, and he sits down and he speaks to the people. He's speaking to the people. In verse 1, on one occasion while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God. To hear the word of God. Now when I read that out to you this morning, you probably didn't think two seconds about me saying something like he read to them or taught them the word of God. Because in our society, our culture, and we, the word of God, when we, the Bible, we know what the word of God is. We kind of have a common phrase among us of the word of God. But back then, they didn't have a common phrase such as the Word of God. And so when you talk about we're going to Bible study, we're going to learn the Word of God. Or we come to church, we're going to talk about the Word of God. We're, we're meaning our Bibles. They didn't have that phraseology. What they were meaning is that when Jesus showed up, he communicated the words of God. Jesus shows up and he is telling them, he is declaring to them, he is standing and he's pressing on them, and they're all pressing in to hear what? The word from, the word of God. Jesus is speaking, and when Jesus speaks, guess what? God speaks. When Jesus speaks, God speaks. The authority, the one who created everything, when Jesus speaks, God speaks. Jesus communicates. We give Incredible trust to voices that we think have authority on the issues we care about. When you have a health issue and you go to your doctor and you assume they've gone to school and they've studied wherever and they'll tell you, no, I got my whatever degrees here and I went to this college, went to this college, been practicing for so many years. And you think, oh, okay, well, then I sounds like you have authority on the issue, so I will take your word for it because you have authority on this issue, right? Right? Everybody with me? That makes sense? Has, you, you, you give weight to those whose voices have authority on the issue. You give weight to their voices. We give incredible trust to voices that we consider to be authorities on issues that they speak on. But what if the one who is speaking is the authority above all other authorities? What if the one who is speaking is God himself? Should we not then listen even more closely I mean, you, you go and you take notes and you you'll study what your doctor is telling you or what the mechanic, you know, guys, we get on YouTube now and learn how to do all kinds of crazy things and you kind of just, well, you, you, okay, you must be an authority, you've done it and you take the word for it. But what if the voice is God himself? What if the voice is God himself? He didn't go to school, didn't learn this somewhere. He made this. He created everything. He spoke and the worlds came into existence. He gave a word, let there be light, and there was light. Called forth, this divided the waters, go to Genesis 1, all these gods spoke, and it was. He's the authority above all authorities. If we trust voices of authority on these lesser issues, how can we not trust the voice of authority over all issues? What voices do we listen to? Just a side note, what voices do you listen to? Who convinces you to do what you do? Who convinces you to be who you are, to practice the things that you practice? Is it your culture? Is it your peers? Is it your head? Is it your heart? 
I, I listen to, when I when I want to fear what I should do, I uh, what's that? Is it Pat Benatar? Listen to your heart. I listen to some '90s pop song or whatever. I listen to my heart when it's a uh, calling for you. Or I don't know. Is that the lyrics? The uh, You know, do I listen to my heart or do I listen to my head? You know, my heart says this and my head says. What do you listen to? Which voice do you listen to? Well, of course, we'd like to say because we're all in church this morning, so you're going to give our Jesus answer. I listen to Jesus, Pastor Darren. I listen to God. Duh, that's the answer. Yeah, okay, well, so you, get, you got the right, you, you check the right mark on your multiple choice questionnaire. But practically, seriously, think about it. What voice has the authority in my life? When I, when I want to make a decision, where do I go? What do I, what do I reference? Who do I think about? Do, is it, you know, you, the distinction when you buy things, is that a want or a need? Does anybody do that distinction? I, I talk about the distinction and then I promptly throw it out the door. But, you know, you have, is this a want or a need? I want to buy something. I try to categorize it. There's a voice that I've programmed into my head. I don't really need it. It's just kind of a want. It goes in the back burner until all the needs are done. Then I can worry about wants. You have these categories. What voice has the authority of your life? What's the practical authority? Do I need this? Do I want this? But how often do we actually take the time to think about what God would have to say about any area of our life? That was a side note. That was not a seed letter. So God communicates. Jesus shows up and he communicates. But going on into the narrative here, the the bulk of what's going on, Jesus is both cognizant and in control. Jesus is both cognizant, aware, He has an awareness that is only an awareness that God could have, and he is in control. We see this incredible awareness of God and uh, Jesus and this command of Jesus. Either, Either he knows where these fish are, or else he commands all the fish to go there, or else he does both. they're, They're all three incredible to think about. This reality of Jesus gives this command, he's taught, he goes into the boat, he sits down, which is the posture that you would teach in the synagogue, he sits down, he's teaching, tells us, says to Simon Peter, put the boat, put the nets out into the deep, Simon, respectfully, master, we fished all night, our nets are drying, they're repairing, we're going to wait, they, we fished, they fished at night on the Sea of Galilee, that's when fish would come to the surface, when the blazing sun went away, they, Peter knew his lake. We fished all day, we fished all night, and we got nothing. And, and Jesus says, go out there. Peter's hesitant, but he says, you know what? If you give the master, uh, if you give the order, we will do it. You don't have to know why Peter's hesitant, right? I don't, I don't fish all that much, but even I know, in fact, I haven't fished for years. I, that was probably a false confession. Malcolm's sitting there, so I feel guilty for not fishing much. Uh, I, I, but everyone knows that it's no big secret how you catch fish. I mean, really, you got to know where they are. I mean, if you throw a, throw a you're reel into it, we, of course, we fish differently now. They're, they're net fishing as we are, you know, bait and lure or whatever. But you got to know where they are. If you don't know where the fish is, you're going to sit all day and cast into an empty pool of water. You're never going to catch the fish. You got to know where they are. And so you can go out with experienced fishermen and they'll say, oh, They'll drop the grass, the breeze is going this way, and the sun's right here, and I don't know how they do it. They're like, uh, I don't know how they figure it out. You know, and the the season is like this, the water temperature's here, there's a tree buried, I bet they're right over here. And you go over there and you find fish. I don't know. Of course, then they show you they got their sonar in the back of the boat, probably. They're kind of, Jesus doesn't have any of that. Jesus shows up and he says, look, throw your your, uh, nets out, and, and, and he says right in there, 
put, in your, put into the deep and let down the nets for a catch. Put the nets out there, you're going to catch something. Either, how, how does he know the fish are there? Who can know on the Sea of Galilee, at the Lake of Gennesaret, same place, looking out over this, where the fish are? Jesus does. Jesus looks and he, and he says, put, the, put into the deep out there. And they go and they do it. Jesus doesn't have sonar. And to think about the idea, Peter is this professional fisherman who has this carpenter by trade who shows up and says, I'm going to tell you how to fish. <laughs> that doesn't usually go well. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go out with a fisherman and tell him, here's how we're going to do it. I would listen. And here the carpenter, the guy who builds houses for trade, shows the, tells the fisherman what to do. But Peter is obey, obedient and the incredible happenings. It, evidently, Jesus is cognizant of the location of the fish in the ways that are not understandable. I mean, obviously he does. He knows where they are. But also, the quantity of the fish that show up is evident that something miraculous is happening here. I mean, these guys have fished this lake. They're prepared for a catch of fish. I mean, I assume that if they're optimists, they they want to catch as many fish as they can. So they want to make sure that their equipment is always going to be more than the possible catch because they don't want to throw any fish back. So they're thinking, what's the biggest possible catch of fish we could get? Let's build our nets for a few hundred more than that so that way we can make sure we can always haul in all of the fish we could possibly catch. And Jesus says they're out there and then somehow in his not only ability to be aware of where the fish are, he's sending so many fish to this area that their wildest expectations are overwhelmed. The fish begin to sink the boats. They are catching so many fish fish they they call the other boat back we're talking about a big long net so they'd have the one boat and they'd they'd truck the other net the other end of the net out one would stay here and they'd float the other end of the net out around with the other boat bring it back around and then just try to start hauling them in and the by the time before they get around to get back they're like come on hurry back we got more fish than we can handle and they come they come flying back there is nothing in the experienced fisherman's mind that has even the wildest dreams of pulling in such a cash catch. But somehow Jesus is not only cognizant and aware, but we see he's in control over everything, even fish. He's in control of everything, even fish. This unpredictable, un- underwater animal, Jesus is in control of it. Jesus reenacts this miracle. We'll see later on after his resurrection. He'll tell Peter, not catching anything over here. He'll say, throw your nets over here. And he does, and he catches fish. And then we see Jesus tell a disciple at some point to go fish, and I suppose with a single net, catch a fish, and in its mouth is going to be a drachma, and pay the temple tax with that coin that's in the fish's mouth. Jesus is in charge. He's in control. And Peter sees it. So don't have to wonder what the point of this is. Peter is there. He sees this command, this, this cognizant, this awareness of Jesus, this command and control of Jesus. And he sees it and he falls down at his knees. Jesus likely was sitting. So Peter falls down. If you can imagine the image, falls down at Jesus' knees and says, you know what? I've got a business proposition for you. Listen, you show up here just once a week and command and control fish and we'll eat good for the rest of our lives. We've made so much money listen, just show up once a week. Is that what he says? No, that was me lying to you. He doesn't say that, right? We've read this already. Falls down on his knees and says, depart from me, 
For I am a sinful man, O Lord. Jesus shows up and there's conviction. Jesus shows up and there is conviction. As a result of this event, Peter is overwhelmed with the reality this man is in my presence. He's seen him work miracles, but when it comes to his area of expertise, he's never seen anything like this. And he, he is convicted. He is convicted. Depart from me. We see this repeatedly in, in the Bible, this meeting with God and just being wiped out, humbled. How can this holy, how can I, the sinner, extend and exist in the presence of this holy God? He's convicted of his sinfulness. How would you counsel Peter at that point? Oh, Peter, it's okay. We're all sinful. Don't worry about it. No, you know, pick yourself up. It's okay. Jesus doesn't do any of that. Jesus doesn't do anything. We'll deal with his sin later on in the gospel. But he's a sinful man in the presence of God. And conviction is a right thing for him to feel. Conviction is a right thing for him to feel in the presence of God. Side note again. Be suspect of anyone who talks much about, well, I was going and sitting in the presence of God. Or I just really met with God. Or I just, and they're always talking about, well, I just really was feeling God. And God was just all around and they never say God was, and it was just warm and wonderful and the, the colors, and it was just, I just felt so good. And they never once walk away from God showed up and I about lost my lunch because thinking about the holiness of God meeting my sinful self. Always be suspect of someone who never has this sort of reaction. The shocking reality, what, what you would think, Peter says, depart from me. And what is so beautiful about this passage, what seems like his disqualification to himself, my sinfulness, depart from me, his disqualification is actually the moment of him finally reaching qualification to enter into full-time discipleship. It's a picture of the central reality of the importance of repentance. When Jesus hears this confession of sin and guilt, what Peter is certain is a message of why God would not want him, depart from me. I'm, I'm, I'm a sinner. You don't want me. What Peter is certain is a message of why God would not want him. He finds that his confession is a sort of last step to certain qualification. There's a real sense in which if you're here this morning, I'm not so concerned if you feel the weight of your sin. and You know you've done things you shouldn't have done. You know that God would not be happy if you were to lay your life out and all of your secret thoughts and all of, your, all of the things you think about and all the things that you do that you would be worried that God would see all of that. I'm less worried about you than the person that shows up and thinks, eh, let's me and God go have a good time. I'm here, God. Here I am. Let's do this thing. Because there isn't this sense of, of greatness of who we are coming up against and who we are meeting. Those who are like Peter, laid low at the holiness of God, are, are, are in just the right place to experience the true grace and mercy of God. So lastly, God, Jesus then calls and commissions. Peter falls down at Jesus' feet and he uses this interesting phrase there in verse 10. Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. It's an interesting phrase there in the Greek. I'm not going to bore you with the details. But normally when you catch a fish, what do you catch a fish for? You're going to gut it and you're going to eat it. So it's not a real pretty picture. Say, from now on, you're going to catch men. And you're going to gut them and you're going to take the skin off of them and eat. No, that, so Jesus uses a different word there. He uses two different words. He uses the word for catch and the word for alive. Zoa, it's a Greek word for alive. And, and so what he is saying here is that you, from now on, you are going to catch men alive. 
From now on, you are going to go and catch men alive. This is normally fish are caught to be killed and eaten. The idea of fishing for men to gut them and sell them is not a great image. But with these two words, we see Jesus saying, you'll be catching men to make them and give them life, come to life. What an incredible illustration this is to be pulled from the sea of death, caught in a net, caught and pulled in from the sea of death, caught and made alive, caught and made alive and brought to the shore of God's salvation. But lastly, we've got to move. Jesus calls costly. Last C word, costly. We see that Jesus calls a costly call. Verse 11, when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. How many fishermen that day would have said, uh, guys, you just caught the biggest catch we've ever had and you're retiring from fishing? <laughs> this, is, this, is a, this is a bad idea. Hello, let's not, what a waste. What a waste to have done this well and then to abandon it to follow the call of Christ. And so many in our culture today say the same thing. What a waste. What a waste to take so much potential and so much whatever and all these great opportunities, all this full life you can live and all these whatever wonderful things they spin out for us. And there's so much more that's out there. And what a waste to say, no, I'm going to live a life of service. My, my master has called me to discipleship. My master has called me to follow him. And the world shakes its head. And they, 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 at, the esti- at, at their estimation, to leave so much to follow so little. And in a sense, they're right. In a sense, they're right. These disciples, when they follow this call to Jesus, where does it lead them? Where does it lead them? Their master gets crucified. They, he resurrects, and they see him and rejoice in him and build the church. But eventually, they end up suffering they end up martyred, they end up tortured, they end up ridiculed, they get stoned a few times, and they die martyrs' deaths. The call to follow Jesus is costly. There's no way around it. If I, they, their, their earthly lives, they don't leave them in a desirable fashion, according to our expectations. They endured much persecution after the death of Jesus. And the call to follow Jesus was a call to die. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. The world thinks it's foolish to follow for so little in return. And it would be if this man were not God. It would be foolish for you to give up all of your worldly pleasures to follow this man. It would be foolish because it's not going to benefit you anything in this life necessarily. It would be foolish if this man was not God. If this man, if Jesus was not God. I don't have to tell you. Don't, I don't, they didn't know where it would take them. And you and I today have no idea of where discipleship after Jesus will take us. And I'd have to lie to you if I told you that it would make all your worldly dreams come true. Just come to follow Jesus, and man, you're going to have your best life now. Joel Osteen puke. Don't listen to it. (laughs) That's not what this is about. I'd lie to you to try to sell you that. But I'd also have to lie to you to tell you that it isn't worth it. I'd have to lie to you to tell you that it isn't worth it. Following the call... To discipleship may be a costly call, but it rewards in the greatest imaginable ways in having God himself. What you get in discipleship is Jesus. You get God. God is the gospel. And and you get, yes, all of his benefits with him, but you get God. Peter asks this very question. He says, we've we've given up houses, fathers, mothers, brothers to follow you later on in, in Mark chapter 10. Jesus replies, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands 
for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and land, lands with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. Many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. The call to follow Christ will come with many of the same trials that everyone on earth goes through in this broken earth. You may still have to fight through cancer or watch someone you love fight it. You may wrestle forever with coming up with enough money to feel comfortable. You will lose those you love before the time that you would like to see them go. Yet it is Peter himself who says, Jesus says some hard things in Luke and John 6, and Peter and John Peter replies to Jesus, asked, Jesus asks, would you want to leave me as well? And Jesus replies that if they'd like to leave him, Peter replies, let me get this straight. Peter replies, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Listen, beloved, Jesus is calling today. He's calling for us to confess our sins, our inability, and to trust in him. I cannot say how this will affect your temporal life cannot say how this will this will all lay out for you but i can tell you how it affects your forever i can tell you how it affects your forever there is only one who has the words of life it may cost you much in this life to follow jesus but luke 9 25 says and jesus says this what does it profit a man if he were to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul if i could sell you something that'd give you a perfect life that costs you your soul what profit is it it's no profit the answer is nothing Jim Elliott writes in his journal these words. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Will you answer his call today? Father, I thank you for the words of life and the words from you that we have, the promises and the hope of eternal life with you, eternal life that begins now, peace, joy, hope, the promise of a new heavens and a new earth where sorrows, sickness, suffering, sadness are gone forever. And all of those things are side dishes to the reality of we get to be with you forever. Father, may we hear your call today. May we, like Peter, fall on our knees at communion and confess, I'm a sinner. I do not deserve this, yet I come and I drink. I come and I eat and I taste the forgiveness, and I taste and see that the Lord is good. Move in our hearts, God, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.